0: Howdy, everyone. You're listening to Blue Jeans and Boots, where genetics grad students talk about how to navigate a PhD program while trying to stay sane. We also invite faculty from our interdisciplinary program here at Texas A&M onto the show and pick their brains about their research, what it's like being a principal investigator, and their journey to becoming a professor here at A&M. In this episode, we'll be talking to Esme Cope. Esme is a graduate student in our very own Interdisciplinary Genetics and Genomics program, and she is in Dr. Zach Adelman's lab, where she works on the genetics of... A- 80s tie. Thank you, Esme. My name is Serena, and I'll be one of your co-hosts today.
1: And my name's Aaron. I'll be your other co-host.
0: Hi, Esme. Thanks for being here today. Hey. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Doing great. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. It's very hot outside.
0: It is very hot outside here. It is terrifying. I forget, this is your first June in College Station. Yeah. How are you holding up?
2: Um, Wow. <laughs> it's, it's a different heat, I'm used to the hot d- dry heat, mm-hmm. but this is a different this is a
0: different breed of heat, yeah, it's definitely sticky here, it's especially yeah. sticky this year, so I'm sorry yeah. coming from you're from Utah, yes, coming from Utah, I'm sure that's kind of a shocker, a yeah,
2: bit. I mean it still like gets to hundred and twenty degrees, but Whew. it's very different when it's wet heat yeah, so i'm
0: <laughs> it scares me every day, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, so being from Utah, do you feel like your environment I know it looks beautiful, I've never been to Utah, but like I've seen your Instagram and pictures on the internet and it looks stunning. Do you feel like that had anything to do with your interest in like the landscape, in science, in ecology, in everything, being somewhere so pretty?
2: That was definitely an influence for me. I think the biggest thing that influenced me was getting outside, being mm-hmm. young. And seeing seeing the mountains, seeing the flora and fauna, mm-hmm. it definitely influenced um, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go and my interest today, currently, so mm-hmm. with my my birding and my outdoorsy nature,
0: so <laughs> there you go, uh, we love it. We love it. It's true, yeah. <laughs> you have lots of very scientific hobbies, which I enjoy, yeah. like it's related. Yeah, You know? yeah,
2: I love the outdoors just in general too but yeah I feel like everyone's always like birding is like the nerdiest hobby and you're doing it and I was like you know what yeah that's (laughs) just living my scientific truth it's okay I
0: love it but you don't work on birds I do not no birds are a passion
2: they are a big passion (laughs) a big focus of the life i Take up. I would say as long as Dr. Edelman is not listening to this, 50% of my life I would say is birds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's probably less. Probably, probably less, less. But yeah, definitely big, big focus in my life.
0: But
2: mm-hmm. so is mosquitoes. So Some mosquitoes. Tell yeah. us a little bit about
0: the mosquitoes, Esme. This is not your first rodeo with mosquitoes no. in graduate school either.
2: No. Yeah. So during my undergrad, I worked in Culex quinquefasciatus, which is a mosquito. Um, it is, it carries different diseases as well. So, um, when I went to grad school, I was like, I want to continue working in mosquitoes. I really liked it. I was doing more of an ecologically focused project during my undergrad. Mm -hmm. So, um, but now I'm moving more into like the medical, um, vector kind of like control of mosquito Mm -hmm. rather than like the ecological seeing like the distribution and things like that. So that's what I'm doing. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: What are the differences, do you know, between the mosquito you're working on now versus the one you worked on during undergrad?
2: Yeah. So the, the main differences is, of course, like phenotypic differences. Mm-hmm. Um, the Aedes aegypti, their distribution is different. They're more of a tropical mosquito. Okay. Um, and then the Culex, they are usually further north, okay. um, depending on which species that you see. Um, But with Aedes aegypti, they are vectors for Zika and dengue and chikungunya, Mm -hmm. things like that. And then um, the culex quink fasciitis, they're vectors for
0: um, West Nile
2: virus. So that's one of the, the main differences between the two. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's so impressive. I'm just impressed that you can say that name so fast, honestly. I would trip over it every time, I think. <laughs> there is
2: so much discourse, though, because, like, some of them, some people in the vector world say, like, kinky fasciatis and some people say quinka fascia. I don't know. I just say quink fasciitis
0: because that's my consensus here, so. What fueled the transition for you between looking at mosquitoes from an ecological perspective versus, like, almost more of a human-centered perspective
2: yeah I think really knowing that that's the direction the world is kind of going in especially Mm -hmm. with urbanization and um just looking at career opportunities really is a big one yeah um and there's not a lot of there's not as many ecologically focused projects out there Mm -hmm. um in regards to like insects and things like that I think eventually I want to go into like conservation of insects. But mm. right now, I think focusing on a more human-centered is really like it's more eye-catching. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. feel like people are more drawn to people-focused things. <laughs> so, that's just I think the main driver.
1: That's yeah. the funding for the NIH compared to other yes, fields, I think.
2: Exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. very it's very evident, unfortunately,
0: but how would you describe? We're talking sort of about the transition between obviously mosquito to mosquito, mm-hmm. but different types and different focuses. How would you describe your sort of overall scientific journey so far in your career? That's a good one.
2: Um, so when I started undergrad, I was very unfocused and I really didn't care at all. It was really <laughs> just like a fun experience. It was like a good fun time, um, but. By the time I had switched my majors twice and I transitioned schools, Mm -hmm. I finally found my passion in biology. Um, I always thought that I was not smart enough for biology and so I really struggled in kind of like finding my way and finding where I was supposed to be and things like that. Um, But then once I started my research with the Culex project, that's when I really figured out that like I am capable of doing mm. smart things, and that's kind of like where I started. Mm-hmm. And then applying to grad school was kind of not on my own volition. Out really, of my own volition it really wasn't. Um, so my advisor during undergrad he told me that basically just like inspired me to do it because he mm-hmm. was like, "You are the most capable student we have at this school." Um, I really think that you can go ahead and like, go to grad school and you can do great things. Um, you really just need to focus and put your mind to it and then you can do it. So mm-hmm. he was really the, the catalyst for, for me going to grad school. So
0: that's so nice. I feel like that's the advisor that we all needed in undergrad, someone to encourage. And especially you said that you weren't sure if you were smart enough or that's what you felt like at the beginning, Mm. trying to figure out what your passion was going to be. And I feel like that's exactly the kind of encouragement that students, especially students that haven't had that encouragement before, need to hear in order to take take the plunge. You know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it's
2: so important for advisors, especially to you know, correct and do all the things that they do, but -hmm. also inspire and make sure that like your students are involved and are, are excited about science and wanting to move forward because I feel like I have seen oftentimes where that's not happening. And so I think it's just, it was very fundamental for me. So I really hope that other advisors can do that for their students as well.
1: If you look back to undergrad or maybe even before that when you were a kid, are there any scientists that were really inspiring to you?
2: Steve Irwin. I know he's not a scientist, but he's an ecologist. And I really it stuck out to me so much like his just his courage, you know? And like Oh how yeah, he, he was could so just, brave. Yes, exactly. Definitely. Just go out and wrestle crocodiles. Not that I would ever do that. <laughs> <No>. Ever. <laughs> but it was just so it was just so inspiring for me to see like someone go out and be just passionate about something that they love yeah. so much. And and he was a conservationist, you know. He was always was advocating for for those sorts of things so I think he was very fundamental to the field and everybody knows him you know he's yeah a I think so
1: and, and he even predated you know people have YouTube channels today but yeah. he, he did that he was a pioneer even before that yeah. which was yeah. really cool
2: he was he was
0: so your undergraduate mentor was really integral to your decision to go to graduate school did you seek him out did he seek you out did you take a class from him how did you find your undergraduate mentor
2: Yeah, I bothered him incessantly for, like, two years. Awesome. Until
0: he (laughs) let me do a project with him. Um,
2: He he had just become the head of the department, and he was so busy. And after, I think it was about two years Mm -hmm. of me just begging him to do anything, any project whatsoever, because I come from a really small university, Mm -hmm. so there were only two options for me to do research. It was either do HERPs or mosquitoes. Oh wow. Um, He also does some cancer stuff but I wasn't at the time really interested in that so I just promised him that I would not be bothersome and I would just like (laughs) do research and I would just do most of it on my own and then he finally let me do it so. Oh wow. Yeah but I it was great because I was able to partner with the mosquito abatement so any sort of work that I needed help with they were able to facilitate any sort of like um, funding. They provided me funding and helped me write grants and things like that. And oh, then wow. they helped me in writing the paper that I that pu- that I published as well. So, yeah. That's pretty cool.
0: What was your paper about?
2: Yeah, so I just published my undergraduate research. Um, it was as I think I published as my thesis technically, mm-hmm. um, but it was a spatiotemporal distribution of the culex. Pipiens quinquefasciatus complex throughout the state of Utah so wow yeah so I just partnered with like I think it was 11 districts throughout the state of Utah that, that spanned from northern Utah to southern Utah and then we just did transect lines and mm-hmm. we collected mosquitoes of from the complex so the two species that interbreed is a complex. And then I basically identified which was present, and then we constructed GIS mapping of the entire spatiotemporal distribution. Then we did it over the course of, I did it for two years, Mm -hmm. and then I also took museum specimens that spanned roughly 10 years, so we had like a good good distribution of time for Mm -hmm. that. So yeah, it was really
0: hard and fun. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's what all good science is, hard and fun. Yes, exactly.
1: I'm curious, with especially with insects, like tracking the numbers and estimating the numbers, how is that actually done?
2: So you do it by hand. Oh, yeah. literally by hand. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we use CO2 light traps out in the field. Um, different abatements do different things, but generally you use CO2 light trapping, and however many you collect, you then take, and then you just freeze them, take them out, and then you count all of them individually by hand. Okay. So.
1: And what are what are the most problematic species here in the states? Oh, or are they lot. too too many to name? It, it
2: depends on what field you're in, and it depends on what you care about too as an individual. Because I know like like crops. I know some of them that are like like worms are really difficult, and caterpillars like with corn. I know caterpillars are like a huge problem, and there's just it really depends on your field too.
1: What sort of um, what sort of illnesses do mosquitoes in the in the U.S. carry, or is it is it only malaria that they um, carry? Um,
2: I we have we don't have any malaria mosquitoes here. That's Anopheles gambiae, I think. Um, but we have West Nile virus um, carrying mosquitoes, Zika, dengue, chikungunya. Um, I think we have all four of the serotypes of dengue. But yeah, those are. Some of the ones off the top so of my So plenty head. of good stuff yeah, out there yeah. deep in the woods. And it's all contingent on, you know, infected individuals in the population. So, you know, more densely populated areas are going to have a higher likelihood of transmitting disease than others. And then also wetter environments sure, will have more sure. mosquitoes. So this is probably, like, Houston and, like, Austin are probably great places for uh, I'm sure transmitting <laughs> disease, I'm sure. So, yeah.
1: So what are... What are some steps um, densely populated areas can take to prevent mosquito growth and spread?
2: Yeah. So you definitely want to dump any standing water. You don't want to maintain any sort of standing water because mosquitoes can lay eggs in even just like a bottle cap sized pool of water. Wow. Wow. So it's can be really, yeah, exactly. They're disgusting, but (laughs) so you want to get rid of any standing water that you have at all. Um, And if you own a house, always like check underneath the house for leaks and things like that. That's really like some of the biggest things. And then making sure that you're calling out your pest management people to come and deal with if you see any mosquitoes at all ever, you want to make sure you're calling them out to come and deal with it. So There's also some, like, natural things that I've seen that you can, like, combine, like, different herbs and things and then put it, like, around the perimeter of your house or put it in pools of standing water and it will prevent them from laying. But I'm sure it's just because it's causing, like, surfactants on
0: the the surface of the water. Right,
1: disrupting the surface tension of the water. Yeah, exactly.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I've always wondered this and I I probably could look it up, but I just haven't. And you're here. So I'm going to ask you, um, what role do insects play in the ecosystem?
2: Oh, it's so important. Really? It's so important. Yeah. Because, you know, birds are insectivores. Mm -hmm. There's so many birds that if we didn't have insects, they would all just die immediately. And that's actually a big problem that we're facing today Mm -hmm. is that as certain pest populations are increasing, um there's issues with um, population dynamics because mm-hmm. um, as s- other sorts of insects go extinct um, there are like certain birds and reptiles and fish that rely on that insect specifically mm-hmm. to live and survive because they eat it. Um, so really insects are like integral to our whole entire ecosystem yeah. honestly and there's also pollinators that are so important right exactly so there's just They're so important, and I love bugs.
0: (laughs) Yes. How do we balance, do you think, controlling the mosquito population and keeping them from spreading disease, but also not disrupting the ecosystem like the birds and the fish and everything that needs them?
2: I think it's hard because, um, like, in our lab, what we do is we are trying to just control the populations. Mm -hmm. So it's not high enough that there will be a lot of disease transmission. So it's not that we want to necessarily wipe out all mosquitoes. It's just control the population levels um, so that the likelihood of transmitting disease is lower. Um, And also, one of the, the girls in my lab, she's working on a really cool project where she is trying to engineer mosquitoes that can't transmit the
0: disease. Oh, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, exactly. So any of the ones that are infected with disease, they die upon the infection. So that would be something that would be really important because we could only have mosquitoes in the population that are not transmitting disease. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be a great, it's just a good idea. And there's so many different ways that you can go about um, controlling the disease population Mm -hmm. um, that I think is just very worth studying. It's very interesting yeah
1: how are mosquitoes as far as a model organism goes are they easy to work with
2: not particularly okay um i work in the sex determination pathway and in mosquitoes really it's not flushed out at all the molecular mechanisms um there are certain portions of it that are but a lot of it still is like really just unknown um and Drosophila are technically the model organism for mosquitoes, but right. there's so many things that are not conserved between Drosophila and mosquitoes I'm that sure. it makes it it can make it really difficult. And each mosquito is different too in their molecular underpinnings, those sorts of things. So it makes it really it can be really difficult too. But um, some of the more studied ones, like mine, Aedes aegypti, is. A lot more studied, okay. but like Culex, um, the one that I studied during undergrad, the lab um, populations, they have a really hard time maintaining them in-house, so it can make studying them a lot more difficult. So,
1: Is it a slow generation time or yeah. specific nutrient requirements that are hard to simulate?
2: Yeah, so with the um, mosquitoes, the Aedes aegypti, they overwinter, so okay. they can diapause, and it m- makes it so that in the next season they can come out, and they, sure. they don't desiccate, their eggs don't desiccate, and um, so it makes it easier to get more mosquitoes Like later. You can lay them in the fall, and they can hatch in the spring, and then you're good, whatever. Um, but with Culex, they don't they don't overwinter, they don't diapause. So it makes it a lot more difficult to maintain populations because of that because if they dry out their eggs they're not viable anymore so yeah
1: okay
0: you've talked about some of the projects that are going on in your lab to help control the mosquito population how do you guys do that what kind of methods do you use to to do that
2: so we do a lot of mosquito rearing obviously Um, we have mosquito rearing and then we also do molecular biology in Mm -hmm. our lab as well. So, um, we do like, there's some people in the lab that do like protein stuff. There's not a lot. Um, but we do some, you know, just the normal stuff like PCR and sequencing and Westerns and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. just like the.
0: run-of-the-mill molecular biology. Yep. Yeah. It's fun. (laughs) Some real solid genetics and genomics for a genetics and genomics student. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly.
2: Very on brand of me. Mm -hmm.
1: Are there any unexpected skills you've had to get really good at in grad school while working with mosquitoes or just being a grad student in general?
2: Command line.
1: Command (laughs) line. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair.
2: It's brutal. I'm just not a computer girly, so my brain is like revolting against me every time I have to do anything on the command line. So I have a bioinformatics minor, so I should be, like, more inclined, but it just – it's not my – It's not my strong suit, and I'm very sad about it.
1: Well, I hate to admit it, but ChatGPT is actually a very good place to start. I've I've been annoyingly yet happily surprised at how good it is at helping me with code.
2: Yeah, I use it for other stuff, but I haven't tried it with code, so maybe I'll have to start doing that. It's worth it. Yeah. Like, free plug.
1: Yeah, (laughs) definitely. (laughs) Not that they need it. It's so popular now. Exactly.
0: So, Esme what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, good question. I feel like I'm (laughs)
2: in fifth grade again. Oh my God. Um, that's a great question. I would like to be everything. I feel that physically possible. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) I really would. I go, I feel like every single day I go between like wanting to be like an undergraduate research advisor. Mm. Um, not, I don't really want to teach, but I know it's like, yeah, gotta. So Mm. I really like the idea of like, Doing what my advisor did for me, like, you know, getting me out into the scientific world and just making me feel like I am actually smart Mm -hmm. and, like, doing that for some of the underprivileged students that I had gone to school with and I've seen be able to flourish and go on to do great things. But I also am interested in doing, like, conservation Mm -hmm. with either insects or birds, um, something like that. I've definitely been leaning... A lot towards insect conservation because it's not as talked about, mm-hmm. um, and it's very important to the to the ecosystem still. And then I am also interested in doing science policy. Mm-hmm. so a lot of different
0: things literally everything yeah. <laughs> literally everything <laughs> literally everything well and kind of the nice thing about if you go into insect conservation is the insects feed the birds so exactly. then you're kind of helping the birds yeah and there's <laughs> a lot of I've been reading about all these projects where like the two just intersect like mm-hmm. so beautifully you know so I'm like maybe that Maybe yeah. everything. Plus, I feel like having some sort of a, a background or at least an interest in science policy is so important when you go into conservation, because it's one yeah. thing to care very deeply about the ecosystem, but it's another thing to be able to put policies into effect that actually help the ecosystem. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, and that's, like, the sect that I would want to be in as mm-hmm. well, so I think it, it would be really great to maybe get, like, a background either in one or the other and then move into that, that yeah. field, so... I think it would be good, but yeah. I got a few years.
1: So I think a lot of um, focus is on little, you know, like mammals that are endangered, critically yeah. endangered, which uh, of course is ov- very important. Um, are there any, you know, lesser known insect populations that are critical to the ecosystem that you're aware of that you think people should know about? Or maybe just the bees. Everyone should just focus on yeah, saving the bees.
2: I know it's the bees. I was going to say. I know there's a species of moth in... There's actually a lot in Brazil that are critical for the putu, which is a type of bird. um, Their conservation, they're critically endangered as well. Um, So probably that, but I don't know off the top of my head.
1: Which is really Uh, then... Two things, I guess, that are endangered yeah, if, if their yeah. food supply is.
2: And they're definitely, I think it's always going to be, like, pretty intertwined having, you know, if you're, one of them is endangered, I think the other right. one is also going to be endangered. By it is so. too. Yeah, exactly.
1: Are you aware of anything we can all do to save the bees? Because I think, I, I don't think anyone realizes how big of an issue that is. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'd be in serious trouble.
2: Really, if, the biggest thing is just plant, like, one, don't have a yard. Or if you're going to have a like a grass yard, just try to put like good pollinating like flowers out in the population to make sure they're native plants. That's like the yeah, most important thing. So, and if you aren't don't care about a lawn and you have a house, just let it grow like free. Like keep the dandelions. Like keep all the ugly stuff because it's so important for pollinators. So. That's like, I think the biggest thing and not just bees, you know, just sure. all of the pollinators because they're all definitely like having a hard time. So in this day and age, I'm always advocating for like native plants because
1: that's one thing Texas does really well with yeah. the highway system during yeah. like March and April. They yeah. just let the wildflowers grow. Yeah. I'm glad you said I have, I have a personal loathing for lawn maintenance anyway. So yeah, I'm glad exactly. to hear that. Exactly. That's the right move yeah, ecologically. Exactly. So
2: I love it. Your future is just going to be nah, just native <laughs> a plants. Wild back yeah, a wild back. Exactly. I love it. Yep. I love it so
0: much. So as my, you have multiple passions and you are on a podcast right now. This is your platform. If you could tell, you know, the young scientists listening, the world listening, curious about insects and birds and everything... What would you what do you want people to know? What do you want people to do? We've talked a little bit about, you know, how you can keep mosquito populations down in and around your house and um how important it is to plant, you know, no lawns. We're officially anti-lawn now on this podcast. Yes, <laughs> yes. Don't tell the turf grass folks. <laughs> True. Um, but what what else would you say? Do you have a, a message you want to get out there? Something people should know about? Or even just I mean, you know, what kind of birds should I look for around here? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, is that too open ended? <laughs> that
2: is very open ended. Honestly, both of these questions are so open ended. Oh my goodness. Well, I think the biggest thing is just like with conservation, I think it can be hard because a lot of people get so caught up in like the little details, like mm-hmm. the forks and the and the straws and it's like those are not the things that matter. I really think that like knowing where you're buying things from yeah. And what kind of sourcing they do is something that's very important. Um, and if you are wanting to implement these sort of values, I think looking for companies that are supporting your values as well is something that's really important. It can be really hard because not all of them are super transparent about what they mm-hmm. do and where they source things, you know, and stuff like that. But just trying your best, it really doesn't take a lot of energy or effort, mm-hmm. but um, really just like supporting those sorts of businesses is what's really important and not supporting the big the big companies, I think is also probably a big one. I know mm-hmm. it's a little controversial, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. And I think also like just knowing that what, every little thing that you do does make a difference. Mm-hmm. I know it's like in the end, Honestly, it probably doesn't. But just, like, knowing that your small steps you're taking are working towards a bigger goal to, Mm -hmm. you know, help uh, hopefully save the planet eventually. So, (laughs) yeah, at least preserve what we have left, I guess. So, which is a little cynical, but...
1: Are there any little things you've implemented into your life in the past few years that you do as a daily routine for
2: conservation? I think I've been doing this for... I don't even know how long I started doing this with like my mom. So we started doing the non plastic bags. So we started using
1: right.
2: um, the reusable bags, which is honestly they're so much better because they're so I much agree. bigger. Yeah. yeah, they hold way more. <laughs> exactly. And th- then they like don't break and they're not like stupid and whatever. And then you have a million plastic bags in your house and it's so annoying. So I think that's like one of the biggest things. And then also just like sourcing from the correct places and I've kind of tried to boycott some of like the bigger companies too um not giving them a free plug but there we go (laughs) we all know we all know them but um some of those and then I also try to use like reusable silverware so I have a reusable silverware thing that I take with me um everywhere I go and then whenever I go out to eat and I know I'm gonna have leftovers I'll just bring like my own Tupperware with me if I know I'm gonna be taking it so it's the little things i think yeah i think th- i think
1: they add up if enough yeah. people yeah. hop on the train
2: yeah exactly I think one thing good. i
1: have implemented is taking cold showers not using uh. hot water but i don't think that is going uh. to be very popular <laughs>
2: i i did that in high school when i was like super dedicated but girl not anymore i cannot <laughs> do that i cannot that's, do that that's
1: all right <laughs> that's um rough. are there any i guess are there any places in texas or just even in the U.S. in general, that you would recommend people visit if they care about, you know, wildlife, conservation, nature?
2: Um. Well, I think supporting, like, wildlife refuges is something that's really important. Um. And that ties back into, like, birding and things like that. It's, like, there's so many bird sanctuaries and, like, wildlife refuges. I just went to one yesterday in Houston. It's called um, Sheldon Lake, I think, Wildlife Refuge. Um. So just supporting, like, your national parks and these refuges as well is something that's very important. And then you can also, like, go and visit these places and they'll, like, teach you about the wildlife, which is, like, super cool. So I think it's really important. And there's also, like, I know there's the Parks Project where they can, um, they donate to um, conservation and things like that for the national parks. So that's also one that's really good.
1: Do you have any advice for... Our listeners who might be um, in college or even in high school about getting involved in science or maybe they're if they're intimidated by um, starting with science do you have any thoughts on some steps they can take to you know build their confidence
2: yeah um bother people incessantly
1: right <laughs> <laughs> repeated emails
2: yes exactly that's because uh, I was so scared I was so terrified but I was so like dedicated, because I knew that I needed to do research in order to get anywhere and decide what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. So just being really persistent, um, and also showing that you care, which I think goes hand in hand with persistence. So um, just dedication really is, is really big. Um, And also, you don't have to know what you want to do. Because even if you're not doing what you want to do, like, during undergrad or even during your PhD, like, it really isn't going to limit you in any way, so just making sure that you keep that in mind, because I think I got so caught up in the details when I was in undergrad, and I was like, well, if I don't do this thing, then I can't do this other thing in the future, and it's like, it really doesn't matter. It's not about what you did, like, of what organism you worked on, it's really about like what what you learned and like how you how you went about solving your problems right. and and things
1: transferable like that. skills, yeah, exactly,
0: yeah. exactly, yeah so asma, you just finished your first year of graduate school, and we have an incoming cohort that is starting to think about you know moving down to college station, they're about to start their first year, you're gonna be a second year, yeah what advice would you give to them? Because obviously they all listen to this podcast and they're about to go start their rotations, look for advisors, think about what kind of science they want to spend the next few years of their life on. What would you have told yourself? What would you think they would need to know?
2: Start early. I know that nobody wants to hear that. And I feel (laughs) like everyone always says, like, don't start early. But I wish I would have started earlier sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, There was like a lot of time where I could have, like before I came in to graduate school, where I could have just looked at professors and like read Mm. some of the stuff. And I definitely did, but not to the extent that I wished I would have. So really just doing like research before and then making sure that you know what you're getting into, like talk to grad students in the program, talk to faculty, talk to a lot of faculty and a lot of grad students to make sure that you know what you're getting yourself into Mm -hmm. if you are going thinking of joining a certain lab or going in a certain direction um I think that's just so important is like
0: talking to people yeah yeah I'm glad you said that because I cannot emphasize that enough every single year after I've been here for four almost five years now and I think every year I say just please 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 ask everybody about everybody and everything because there's a big group of us but there's always someone that knows someone that you're interested in and it's good to have multiple perspectives because I mean the number of papers they publish doesn't necessarily indicate whether Mm -hmm. or not they're like a really cool boss or terrifying
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah. and I think it's also like important to remember with that is that like not everyone is going to have the same experience and i I know that people do change um, and I think that's also really important to Mm -hmm. know in making your decisions because, you know, someone could be acting a certain way or whatever, but it could be because of like circumstances. So I think it's good to have, give people the benefit of the doubt, but also like make sure you're listening to people and their Mm -hmm. experiences. I think there needs, there's like a good balance between those two. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. and, And related to, I just wanted to say related to the persistence thing um i think as an especially as an undergrad you have this this um view of people above you that is very intimidating but yeah. uh really it if you're interested in what they do they love talking about yes. what they do yes. to a point where you will find out that they'll never stop talking <laughs> yes. about it yes. if you get them in their office so yeah i think um i think not being afraid is is really yeah. important which yeah. which is easier said than done of course yeah but.
2: Yeah. I was so afraid and I still am afraid every single day. So I think it's like, it's, it's a good like idea, but putting it into practice is always so scary. You know what I mean? I think it's just, it's terrifying to, to be persistent and it's, you don't want to bother people and you don't want to whatever, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, like they love to talk about, people love to talk about themselves just in general. (laughs) So it's like, If if they have a chance, they're gonna love it. So I really think that's so real, honestly.
1: <laughs> well, is there anything else you would like to add for our listeners today, Esme?
2: Um, just go look at birds. We Fantastic. love <laughs> we love birds. <laughs> and look at stop being afraid of insects why is everybody so scared of bugs that's so crazy (laughs) i was
0: gonna say esme's talking about how she was afraid of people but she is literally the bravest person i've (laughs) ever seen this woman will pick up anything that crawls jumps buzzes literally any of it and i am so afraid of so many of them so i admire it if esme says to pick up bugs who knows maybe i'll go pick up a bug no promises but i'll consider it
2: you're not even scared of bugs either i'll be like
0: look at that cool bug and you're like nice girl if it's on the ground it's fine (laughs) When I pick it up, I'm like, ooh, it's on me. I don't know. That's, that's, that's why I that's admire valid. you. It's brave. That's <laughs> valid.
2: That's very valid. No, I know. I think just go look at your local birds, support your pollinators, and be good. Be a good human.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to end. So, today's episode was hosted by Aaron and Serena DiSalvio. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas A&M University Interdisciplinary Graduate Program in Genetics and Genomics. If you have any questions about our program here at AM, please feel free to reach us at bluejeansandboots at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Genetics Podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in next time.